0: Hello everybody, VegCast is winding up, VegCast. as summer 2010 is winding down, VegCast, a full menu from first to last, VegCast. Yes, it is another full menu of vegetarian podcastery here on the second VegCast of August 2010. And this time out, we are going to be talking with Dr. Melanie Joy on the topic of carnism. And if you are unfamiliar with that topic, it may be because uh, Dr. Melanie Joy has coined the word And we will be going into what exactly that word means and why she felt it necessary to come up with a new word for an ideology that she says would otherwise be invisible in our culture. And so we will be talking with her about her book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. Uh, We'll also be hearing a new track, a new selection from Yvonne Smith, the traveling vegetarian turned musician, and we will have a science fact for you about the latest cancer-fighting superfood. What will it be? Well, you will just have to sit back, relax, and let this unspool uh, so that you can find out what that is, and so I am going to get on with that now and wish you a warm welcome to this 88th edition of Veg. Now many of you may know that I authored a book of vegetarian cartoons in 1997 called The Joy of Soy, and I don't often do this, but I'm going to refer back to one of those cartoons. Uh, It had a man talking to a woman who was apparently uh, an animal activist, uh, telling her, you know, you animal lovers would be okay, except you're always preaching. You won't let up. And the ironic twist to the cartoon is that uh, they're standing in a cityscape that is filled with billboards and other kinds of advertising, other kinds of messaging uh, that is pushing the eating of animal products on uh, everybody who looks at them, and of course at the time I did not have a term to describe this, uh, but now we do, and that term is carnism, and so we're going to talk right now to Dr. Melanie Joy about what that means and why we should start uh, thinking about this concept. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to welcome to the studio via telephone Dr. Melanie Joy, who is the author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, an Introduction to Carnism. Dr. Joy, welcome to VegCast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for being here, and uh, we wanted to try to get this uh, this interview going for a while now. I read your book uh, back in the spring, and uh, we talked about it at Summerfest, didn't get... Really, a chance to record this now, so I'm happy to uh, be able to talk to you now and uh, share the uh, the concept of carnism with our VegCast listeners. And uh, if we can start right at the, the basic level for uh, people who may not have heard of this, uh, what exactly do you mean by the word carnism?
1: Well, carnism is the name that I use for the invisible belief system or ideology that conditions people to eat certain animals. Carnism is essentially the opposite of veganism or vegetarianism. We have labeled those other belief systems, veganism and vegetarianism, but we haven't labeled the dominant belief system that enables people to eat animals. And by not labeling carnism, um, meat eating appears as though it's a given rather than a choice. We tend to assume it's only vegans and vegetarians who bring our beliefs to the dinner table, but most people don't for instance, love dogs, but eat pigs because they don't have a belief system when it comes to eating animals. And whenever eating animals is not a necessity, it is a choice, and choices always stem from beliefs.
0: And uh, what, you know, we're certainly vegetarians, most of us who are animal rights activists, are uh, familiar with Animal Liberation, the Peter Singer book, uh, where he defines speciesism as, um, you know, on a par with uh, sexism, racism, and so forth. Uh, but i 'm assuming you you have a slightly different connotation for carnism can you Can you tell us basically how you distinguish the two concepts
1: yep sure um, and I do see carnism on par with other exploitive isms. Carnism is an ideology that um, uses that has similar structural features with other violent ideologies or exploitive ideologies like sexism or racism or classism, for instance. but to differentiate carnism for, from speciesism um, the way that I describe this is speciesism is the broader ideology, the backdrop that enables carnism to exist. Carnism is like a sub-ideology of speciesism, just the same way that, for instance, um, anti-Semitism is a sub-ideology of racism.
2: All
0: right. And would you, I mean, is is carnism something that uh, also plays into, I mean, you, you do call it Um, a violent ideology, and it certainly is, but of course the mainstream doesn't think (laughs) of meat-eating for some reason as as something involving violence, but is it also tied in with, you know, a a kind of uh, our own, among our own species, our our willingness to, you know, use violence as a a way of trying to solve problems and trying to just wipe out other people uh, who we perceive as problems?
1: Right, well that's a great question, Um, and the short answer is yes. Um, You know, most people do in fact care about other animals, and don't want to think of them as suffering, let alone think of themselves as causing that suffering. And yet carnism requires that people do just that. And so, like other violent ideologies, carnism needs to use a set of psychological and social defense mechanisms to enable humane people to participate in inhumane practices without realizing what they're doing. Carnism essentially teaches us how not to feel when it comes to eating animals. And so with my book, what I felt was essential to do is to expose not simply the truth about meat and animal product production, but the truth about carnism, which is the system that enables these products to be produced in the first place.
0: Right. Well, now let me... uh, we haven't really got into your background. I mean, you do certainly uh, have a, a strong background in uh, psychology and uh, psychological issues. But before we get into that, I just uh, one of the um, questions that I saw somebody ask was well, why why call it carnism when that then focuses all of the attention on meat per se when, of course, veganism. Uh, strives to say you know it's not just about uh avoiding eating dead animals per se it's it's about uh, avoiding exploitation in the form of milk eggs and everything else so did you you know did you cast about for a while before coming up with this particular route that that you thought would would catch people's imagination or how did you decide to kind of focus it that way
1: well um carn means flesh. Or it can also mean of the flesh, and ism denotes a belief system. So we can think of carnism as the opposite of either veganism or vegetarianism, depending on how you want to use the definition. I see carnism and veganism as on a continuum, essentially. So... When I was writing the book, I was writing it for a mainstream audience, for a wide audience. Um, I did not talk about veganism in the book, although I talked about the principles, of, or vegetarianism so much, for that matter. It's a book about carnism. And I wanted people to um, learn about the reality of how animals are turned into flesh and how their body parts are used and their bodies are used to produce other you know, so-called products. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to just make sure that I used a word that really captured the, a word that would resonate with the mainstream, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Right, okay. Well, were you worried that it would feed it all into, you know, a lot of people like to say, I'm a carnivore, uh, as their, you know, as a kind of a tacit excuse for their choosing to eat meat and or other animal products. Uh, When we know for a fact, you know, they're not actually literally carnivores, but their sloppy usage of that uh, kind of, you know, papers over uh, a distinction (laughs) that needs to be made and makes it seem like, you know, they they have no choice in the matter. Were you, you know, did you worry about it kind of dovetailing with that?
1: No, in fact, I use the word to offset the term carnivore, or omnivore, or meat-eater, because, you know, until now, we've been calling those who are not vegans or vegetarians either omnivore, or carnivore, or meat-eater, but these labels are inaccurate, and in my opinion, they're actually detrimental to the vegan movement. They reinforce the very assumptions, um, you know, the assumptions that eating animals is natural and normal, and these are two of the most entrenched and compelling myths that are used to justify carnism. Um, so, you know, omnivore and carnivore are terms that describe a person's physiological disposition, not one's ideological choice. So whenever we say carnivore, whenever we say omnivore, we're reinforcing this idea that eating animals is somehow natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and meat-eater is a term that makes, um, you know, animal eating animals, um, it focuses on the behavior of eating meat, as though one is acting outside of a belief system when they consume animals. So my hope was to use the term carnist in order to not reinforce these inaccurate um, terms that support the carnistic myths that enable um, meat and animal product consumption to continue.
0: Right. Let's just get into how you arrived at this, uh, at this point. Now, uh, you're a vegan now, but like most of us, I'm assuming that you weren't always uh, a vegan. How did, you, how did you kind of progress toward that in your thinking?
2: I,
1: um, I grew up with a dog um, who I loved like a family member. I also grew up eating animals, um, and there came a point in my life, I know I had been exposed to information on the reality of um, the production of animals and animal products, and I, I just wasn't, I was, you know, one of those many people who would say, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. I wasn't ready to take it in, right. um, although I always felt like I was vegan, a vegan trapped in a carnist's body. Um, and at some point in time, I was exposed to literature, and I was in a place in my life where I was ready to take that information in, and I did become vegetarian at the time. Um, and then I, I wound up going back to eating meat a number of years later, because I was still very young, I was adolescent, um, and I got very sick from eating a hamburger. And I was hospitalized, and it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because it gave me just the the uh, motivation I needed to never eat flesh again. And a few years later, I stopped eating dairy products as well.
0: And you, in, at the same time, you started in a track where uh, you were pursuing studies in psychology, and uh, the, the two have kind of come together here as you've, you're kind of defining a, a psychological state. Is that fair? Right.
1: Absolutely. Um, and when I talk about carnism, it's a mentality, as well as a social system, as well as a, as a psychological system. Um, what I did was I ended up, um, I became a vegetarian at the age of 23, and that was what motivated me, actually, to pursue my education, because I started giving talks and workshops around the Boston area on vegetarianism. And what I found was that many people who attended my workshops were deeply moved, agreed with what I had to say, and yet left and continued to eat animals. And I was very curious as to why this happened. Um, I, I pursued a, a master's degree in education. Um, I wanted to increase the effectiveness of my teaching, and then I went back to school and I pursued my doctorate in social psychology because I wanted to understand why education alone wasn't enough to to encourage people to make this kind of a change. And. The book that has become, you know, the, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows is based on my doctoral research, my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of carnism.
0: Well, now, in, when you say education isn't enough, I mean, in a sense, a, the book is another form of education. What, you know, looking at the the problem, at which you've identified now and named, what would you say in terms of a, a, a social system or any other... Uh, remedy is is really the most successful way to overcome it.
1: I should say certain types of education are not enough. You know, presenting the facts. The facts do not sell the ideology, Uh and there's a reason for that. People need to... asking somebody to stop eating animals is not simply asking for a change of behavior. It's asking for a shift of consciousness. I think we need to understand that as vegans, as vegan advocates, and And we also have to understand that people don't make this kind of shift of consciousness until they're in a place where they're psychologically ready to do so, where they feel psychologically safe enough to do so. And so, yes, my book is a form absolutely of education. Um, My hope is that my book would expose this invisible system so that carnists could start thinking for themselves and think outside of this system that so indoctrinated them, It's indoctrinated all of us, and that vegans and vegetarians would feel more grounded in their beliefs, have the vocabulary to better articulate um, you know, as they're advocating their beliefs. And I think it's really essential for those of us who are working to um, abolish the production of and consumption of animal products to understand that people don't eat animals um, simply because it's a matter of personal ethics. Doing this, eating animals, is the inevitable end result of a deeply entrenched belief system. And if we can understand this system and the way it operates, we're at a much greater, uh, a much better advantage. We have a much better advantage um, to transforming it.
0: Right. Well, when you, when you talk about the, the invisible system and, and how it operates on people, I, I was just uh, thinking this morning about the the bizarre kind of topsy-turvy world that we live in, in terms of uh, foodborne illness, uh, where we just, uh, you know, had 380 million eggs recalled uh, for salmonella. And just uh, last week or so, there was another million pound recall of beef for E. coli. Uh, and these stories were basically just tiny, tiny blips in, uh, in the news media, whereas when spinach or peanut butter or some plant-based product uh, manages to become infected with uh, you know foodborne bacteria, which is almost always directly from uh, domesticated livestock. those are huge stories that, that don't bother you know tracing the the actual source whereas you know these other things are so oh sure, you know eggs, salmonella, beef e coli that's that's old news and it certainly has that same function of, uh, reinforcing the concept that, you know, just eating those and, and getting sick, sure, that's that's just something that you have to expect to happen now and again, whereas these other things, they're really worth reporting. And, of course, it has this, I suppose, unconscious effect of of uh, unfairly trying to level the playing field as though you have to just watch out for all, all of these different foods because they just might have something wrong with them. And, you know, it's never actually... <laughs> thoroughly reported in a very lucid way what what the real problem is there
1: right and and in my book, I talk about what I call the three ends of justification: eating animals as normal, natural, and necessary, and these are myths um and they they're myths that have been institutionalized they've been embraced and maintained you know, by all of our major social institutions, from the family to the state, if we truly buy into these myths, which most people do, that eating animals is, in fact, necessary, then we have to take the good with the bad, so to speak. And we do just accept that foodborne illnesses and all of these other serious problems connected with the production and consumption of animals um, are just going to be part of the process that we have
0: to get used to. Right. Well, now that, uh, now that you are out there uh, promoting this book, are you uh, finding ways that you, you want to refine this, you want to do something further with it, or do you f- kind of figure why we love dogs, uh, eat pigs and wear cows is the, you know, your magnum opus, and, and you've, uh, you're going to rest on your laurels, or what, what's, what, I guess I'm always trying to find a new way to ask the question, what's next for, uh-huh. for Dr. Melanie Joy?
1: Well, I um, i mean, writing this book has been a means to an end, and that end is far from having been reached. Um, I would like to see, I, I strongly believe that the vegan vegetarian movements need to shift our focus away from veganism and vegetarianism and put it on carnism, the same way feminists Um, have stopped saying, you need to be a feminist, but have said, let's examine sexism and let's challenge sexism on an institutional and on an interpersonal level. I think that this is a very important shift for us to make. And I'm not saying that we should abandon the concepts of veganism and vegetarianism. They're incredibly important, but the focus has been on us, has been on, um, on, you know, those of us who are vegan and vegetarian. And I think we need to put the focus on the institutions and on the problem, really name the problem, So to that end, carnism needs to become a much better known word than it is now, and it's going to be up to um, those of us in the movement to really embrace this word and help get it out into the mainstream, because once we do, it'll radically change the way that we think and we talk about the issue of eating animals. So I have um, been in the process of launching an organization on a website um, called CAN, Carnism Awareness and Action Network. Um, which will be accessible through carnism.com um, in the next few weeks um, where people can come together who want to um, get information and help raise awareness um, about the issue.
0: Okay, great. And uh, when that's up, if you let us know, we'll add that into the show notes for this podcast and uh, uh, you know, be sure that at least uh, we can get the word out uh, this way. And uh, again, that book is called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. It's by Dr. Melanie Joy, and it's out from Canary. And uh, Dr. Joy, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today and uh, talking about carnism on VegCast.
1: Oh, thanks so much. It's really been my pleasure.
2: upon a time Now it seems like another life I was someone I didn't want to know No one knew even I who I was inside Reaching through the dark Someone Would take my hand Paralyzed Afraid of any kind Of change I've learned so much Since then Now I understand Telling my new story Singing my new song Loving I'm wearing
0: Yvonne Smith, who many of you will remember as the travelling vegetarian and who is now telling my story as she says uh, a some listeners prone to lyrical analysis might find a little bit of uh, autobiography. And, That lyric. I don't know if we're reading too much into that. Uh, We can uh, put that out there and wait and see if we get angry letters from the traveling vegetarian sector. But in the meantime, we need to turn to the science. Our science fact for Vegcast 88 is watercress, the new cancer-busting superfood. Now, this is from Tonic.com, which is a, a news site, not a, a mainstream outlet. Uh, but, of course, this was in mainstream outlets, but I chose this just so that I could read that headline uh, because it does kind of encapsulate the essence of this science fact. And it's a pretty brief write-up. I'm going to read some of it for you now. According to U.K. scientists, a portion of the leafy green vegetable a day, that's watercress, ...could keep cancer at bay. As well as being packed full of essential vitamins and minerals, it's now believed that watercress could prevent the growth of cancer cells. Britain's Daily Telegraph reports that researchers at Southampton University in the UK studied the effect of regular watercress consumption on a group of women, all of whom were breast cancer survivors. After fasting and then eating a regular portion of the peppery salad leaves, the women experienced a drop in a cancer-aiding molecule and elevated levels. Levels of cancer fighting molecules. The study, led by Professor Graham Packham and published in the British Journal of Nutrition, is exciting news indeed. The report states this pilot study suggests that dietary intake of watercress may be sufficient to modulate this potential anti cancer pathway. And that's kind of the takeaway sentence in that, you know, you can eat all the watercress you want if you're also— Uh, stuffing your face with hot dogs and deli meats and things, and it may not actually work to stop cancer because it may be that you need to look at your entire diet and uh, how you get vitamins and minerals from different foods. And so this, again, is a kind of a typical report in that it's uh, isolating something uh, and saying, oh, well, this thing is going to help. And of course, I'm not going to sit here and tell you not to eat watercress or that watercress isn't good for you. It's just that we still haven't quite gotten to that uh, mindset that T. Colin Campbell speaks of in the China study, where he says we have to look at the whole diet, the whole how different things that you're eating work together with each other and support each other or work against each other. So. Uh, just uh, i 'm going to give a little bit of a caveat there, but again, now that we have that out of the way let 's just note once again that this is another uh, plant food that both fights the kinds of cells that help cancer and it boosts the kind of cells that work against cancer and as of yet, as of this recording, we have not yet seen any. Uh, animal product in isolation that is able to do that. It's a bizarre thing, given that we must eat animals in order to survive, Uh, as somebody actually said to me with a straight face uh, just a few weeks ago. But I do assure you that on the occasion that such a correspondence is found between an animal product and the ability to fight cancer rather than cause it, uh, we will certainly be sure to share that with you here on the Science Fact. And before we go, a little update on that egg recall that I mentioned in my conversation with Melanie Joy, which actually occurred a week before I am finally getting the podcast done and out there in that interim period The 380 million eggs has expanded to 550 million. To uh, looking at chicken feed now as a source, with in air quotes, of course, source of salmonella. uh, And uh, congressional hearings being uh, scheduled now to uh, have egg producers come and testify about this. So uh, this has actually gotten some legs, uh, contrary to uh, about a week ago when those of us who were paying attention uh, were hearing about it, but it hadn't quite started to uh, hit the front pages. So that is a good thing in that it is bringing attention to something that is a persistent problem. We will see how long uh, the American public uh, continues to pay attention to it uh, before thinking, oh, well, everything must be absolutely fine now but it was good to see uh in the mainstream reporting some health experts pointing out that uh there are uh like two million uh eggs out there every year that are infected with salmonella and it's just basically a crapshoot as to whether you're going to get it Uh, i did not use that term intentionally but i think we will stick with that and get out of here (laughs) I would like to thank our sponsor, Light Life, who makes veggie eating easy. Join us, they say, and be pro-veggie. I would also like to thank Dr. Melanie Joy for being so patient with uh, me getting this interview scheduled and getting the podcast done. And uh, thanks, of course, to her for talking with us about carnism. Thanks to Yvonne Smith for sharing her latest oeuvre with us and our VegCast listeners. And thank you, VegCast listeners for downloading and subscribing. Until next time, I would hope that you will get out there and live like you mean it.